And now I will introduce today's special guest. When I was in high school way back when, every student who took a course in Canadian literature was sure to come across the Hugh McLennan novel, Two Solitudes. Two Solitudes was published in 1945 at the end of the Second World War. It was a classic in its day and since, and it's about the perennial search for Canadian identity and the divisions between English and French-speaking peoples at that time. Some of those divisions remain, but we've also seen a lot of changes in the last 65 years as this country has more than doubled in population and become infinitely more complex in composition. Two solitudes have now become many cultures, and Canada is now one of the most ethnically diverse countries in the world. Some of the ties that bind us have changed, and so has our sense of shared history. Half of us can't name our country's first prime minister. We're also sadly uninformed when it comes to our own geography. Huge numbers of Canadians don't know where Nunavut is, or which is the largest of the Great Lakes. Nor are we as involved in our political systems and processes as we should be. Participation rates are particularly low for young people and new Canadians. Only one-third of first-time voters cast their ballots in the last election. Our guest today has given a lot of thought to what it means to be a Canadian and what it should mean to be a Canadian in the 21st century. As well as being a regular columnist and editorialist for the National Post, Roger Griffiths has an impressive list of other credentials. He is co-founder and former executive director of the Dominion Institute, an organization dedicated to building active and informed citizens through greater knowledge and appreciation of the Canadian story. He's a political commentator for CTV Newsnet and was recognized as one of the Globe and Mail's top 40 under 40 in 2006. And now he's adding best-selling author to his resume. In his new book, Rudyard challenges Canadians to reclaim the shared values and social solidarity on which this country was built. He reminds us that Canada has evolved as a nation of citizens, not a collection of different communities. The title of his book is provocative, and so is Rudyard Griffiths. In Who We Are, a Citizen's Manifesto, he turns conventional wisdom on its head. He characterizes Canadians in ways that we might not recognize ourselves, calling us an ambitious people and using terms like bold and sometimes reckless to describe our history of nation building and our forays into world affairs. How refreshing not to be described as cautious or dismissed as dull. Thank you, Roger. <laughs> we are about to discover that Roger is just as engaging a speaker as he is a writer. Please join me in welcoming to the Canadian Club Roger Griffiths as he draws us into a discussion of who we are and what citizen really, citizenship really means in Canada today. Well, as a, uh, a nod to uh, the Grano series that uh, Roberto and Patrick and I started a number of years ago, I'm going to speak uh, without notes, uh, without a podium, because uh, in a sense I want to have a conversation with you. I want to give you a, a precis of this book, uh, a taste of what it's about, and then leave some time uh, for questions. Because as an author, one of the great things is having your ideas tested, contested, and debated. And I, a lot of friendly faces in this audience, but I also know a lot of people 
who will have uh, some thoughts on, on what they're uh, about to hear. A few people just to uh, recognize uh, first, uh, a great uh, table, friends from the Dominion Institute, staff that I've worked with over the years. It's absolutely terrific to have you here. As, my, uh, as it is my formidable uh, replacement, Mark Shalafu, who's done does such a great job as our incoming director. In addition to some first-time nerves as a, a first-time author speaking at the Canadian Club, I, I have another gauntlet to run, which is to speak in front of my book club, which is at the back of the audience, uh, hosted by uh, Duncan Jackman. So guys, great to have you here. Great to see that they took my instructions to clear the bread rolls, none to throw. I know uh, I'm safe. Um, also, uh, two other people who've really been uh, mentors to me, both at the Dominion Institute and some of the things that I'm doing now after having left the Institute. Uh, that's Alan Gottlieb uh, from the Donner Canadian Foundation and, of course, uh, my friend Peter Monk. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, both for being here. It's important uh, that, uh, that you're here today. Um, so what is this book about? Uh, in a nutshell, it is a distillation of uh, the 12 years that uh, Michael Chong, Eric Penz, and myself spent uh, building uh, an organization called the Dominion Institute, which, as Helen described, has as its mission, as its mandate, uh, promoting civic literacy, knowledge of our country's history, its political institutions, uh, the values that we share uh, in common. Um, that experience, while uh, incredibly rewarding, uh, and one that uh, brought a lot of uh, people into my life that uh, I think showed how a small organization of young people could make a difference, uh, also really raised some questions for me about, about Canada. And I, I'll be honest with you, when I left the Institute, uh, Canada, Canada Day of last year, I, I felt that I was stepping down with a with a job half finished, a job half completed. And I felt that way because in the final years of, uh, of the institutes uh, uh, under my leadership, uh, we came across a very different argument, a very different proposition for what Canada was all about. A proposition that really at times took exception with our belief that a widespread knowledge of our history, a celebration of our national heroes, an investment in our national institutions and national symbols uh, was something of real importance and value. In academia, in other think tanks, uh, in op-ed pages, uh, one increasingly heard an, uh, uh, an argument that went something like this, uh, that Canada is living through an age of unprecedented globalization. Uh, we're living through a time of mass migration, peoples and nations uh, uh, moving about, about this world, many of them coming uh, to Canada. And also uh, a notion that uh, part of, obviously, what makes Canada an interesting place today is the incredible diversity of, uh, of our society uh, circa, circa 2009. Um, and what I found about this argument that, that worried me was, was the notion somehow that all of this could just happen spontaneously. Uh, that, as some of the proponents of this view of Canada would argue, that the lack of a Canadian identity had become our identity. Uh, and look, there's some reason to say that that might in fact be the case. As Helen mentioned, we've got surveys that we've done ad nauseum at the Dominion Institute that show abysmal knowledge of Canadian history, uh, very poor knowledge of our political institutions, our political practices, uh, and increasing regionalization within the country, and also divisions amongst uh, groups defined by language and ethnicity. In other words, a, a declining lack of common civic knowledge 
informing uh, the larger Canadian populace. That's a reality. That's a symptom of contemporary uh, Canada. And I guess what, what, what worried me about uh, the, the direction of the debate of the conversation of where Canada is headed is that people seem to be making a virtue out of what I think is a vice. Uh, and in our work at the Dominion Institute, in my column and elsewhere, uh, I felt that, that there was a need to posit a, an alternate narrative, a different story about Canada, a story that led to different conclusions, that started at a different place and ended at a different destination. So that's why I purposely picked a, a somewhat provocative title for this book, you know, The Great Existential Country, uh, Canada. Uh, this book is called Who We Are, uh, in a, an attempt to make a definitive declaration about uh, what this nation is about and the values that inform uh, our citizenship. Now, uh, I, I, I want to tell you something about what those values are and what that, that lar the, who in, the who in the are and the we is. I'm going to save a little bit for the book in the hope that you might buy one uh, on the way out. But to say that uh, I've really always felt strongly about the importance of Canadian history. That's why I spend some time in this book going back into Canadian history, going back to really two periods, the run-up to responsible government uh, in the 1830s and 1840s, and then what I think of as, as another remarkable decade of nation-building in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War in the 1950s. And what I take away from those two uh, decades, that have all kinds of interesting similarities between them, is, is a notion that we could tell a story of ourselves not as a a nation of communities, a nation of regions, a nation of different linguistic, ethnic, or other groups, but rather a story of ourselves as a nation of citizens. Uh, the notion that, that there are uh, uh, some common values that our ancestors you know, struggled for, struggled to articulate, to fight their way out of uh, an incredible, narrow, and at times violent sectarianism of the 19th century. Uh, we forget those, but in this very city, the the, kind of the religious wars, in a way, between Protestants and Catholics infected in our entire conversation about Canada. Yet our early forebearers, through the creation of responsible government and a whole set of uniquely Canadian institutions and symbols, managed in a matter of a few short uh, years between the rebellions of 1837 and responsible government's creation in 1848 to, to posit and make a new idea work, which would be what would it mean to be loyal to Canada? In other words, what if your, your most fundamental loyalties were not to your, your ethnic, religious, uh, linguistic, or regional group, but instead to some larger idea called Canada? They did that in 1848. That project was reaffirmed at Confederation a decade, uh, two decades later. And we, we went forward into uh, the 20th century with, yes, uh, hangovers of colonial uh, attitudes vis-a-vis -vis Britain, uh, the, the continuing challenge the United States posed to Canada as the more kind of dynamic, seemingly more democratic republic to the south. But we did remain loyal to some fundamental conception as to uh, what this country was and the very notion that we were building in Canada a project, a society, a nation that was different than the European uh, experience, uh, as well, actually as disastrous as that was, uh, in, into the 20th century, and also, frankly, different from the American experience. Peace, order, and good government as the, the kind of distillation of a, a different way of looking at society and its objectives. That second decade, after the Second World War, and we have a number of veterans here from the Memory Project, and I, I learned a lot from them at the Dominion Institute 
it was remarkable to sit down with some of these men and women and learn from them what that experience was like for a million Canadians to be uh, in uniform in that war in a country that had a population of between 12 and 13 million at the time. So almost one in 10 uh, Canadian citizens shared in that, in that tumultuous experience. Well, those men and women, and many of, of them are here right now, came back and, and had a series of ideas about the country. One, that the Depression could not repeat itself, that there had to be a positive, proactive role for government, for nation building, for national projects to save or to stave off the threat of, uh, of the return of anything like the Depression again. And more importantly, the war had to mean something. All of that sacrifice, the 60,000 Canadian dead left on, on foreign fields, including uh, my grandfather, uh, the tens of thousands of wounded, the families torn apart, the communities teared asunder, all of that had to mean something. And that generation, again, I'm just honored that they're here with us uh, for, for lunch today, that generation really went out and I think took some of those earlier ideas about uh, citizenship and being a, a nation defined by who we are as a people and making that project unique from what the American experience was and different uh, from the European experience and they gave life to it. They gave life to it through a whole series of institutions that we now understand as cornerstones of, uh, of, of the Canadian identity, whether that's universal health care, uh, equalization, uh, the peacekeeping, the beginnings of the Korean War, uh, a whole series of things that happened in the 1950s that I think set in the, the, the tracks, the trajectory of much of our history that's happened since. So I guess this book is, a, is, is an attempt to say to Canadians, let's pause for a moment. Let's think about where Canada is. Is, you know, can this country simply unfold spontaneously? Can it simply uh, uh, unwind as those who would like to see the lack of, of Canadian identity being the cornerstone of our identity as they would posit? Or do we need to reconnect with what's best in our history, with this notion of ourselves uh, as a nation of citizens? And that's why, uh, uh, while, I'm, while I worry about the divisions within Canada, the lack of voting, the lack of volunteering, the degree to which in many ways our body politic has atrophied, I'm at the same moment hopeful because I can see that there is a way to reconnect back to this larger trajectory, this original arc of a nation of citizens that began in the aftermath of rebellions of uh, 1837, 1838. Uh, and that's why in terms of policy prescriptions, I, I wanted to put forward some ideas for discussion and debate. And as I've gone out west on the first leg of my book tour, I've been encouraged at how those ideas are being picked up and, and debated. Um, I, I think there's an opportunity for us to revive a, a very important institution, a very important symbol, one which we've, we've neglected, and that's the institution and the symbol of Canadian citizenship. I mean, we have one of the, the least demanding uh, citizenships going, um, you know, both for newcomers uh, and for the Canadian board. If you're a foreign investor, you can buy Canadian citizenship for approximately $100,000. Uh, and as we were talking as, uh, with some of my colleagues over lunch here, what we seem to have forgotten is, is that the value of Canadian citizenship, I think, has appreciated significantly over even the last number of years. Even, you could say, since the onset of this uh, period of global financial turbulence. Uh, in, in a hotter world, Canada's not a bad place to be. In a world echoing with the clash of civilizations, this is not a bad 
place to be. In a world where, um, again, peoples are, people are moving, there's mass mig migration, uh, we have some of the basics here, uh, natural resources, water, space, uh, that many people uh, desire and want. So I think our citizenship has actually appreciated significantly in value, but in many ways we're still stuck in the mindset of Canada of the 70s and 80s, or even periods slightly earlier, a mindset of Canada as a country you know, facing a separatist threat, it's near breakup, a country mired, uh, we may, may be in the future, but we were then mired in debt and out of control uh, public expenditure. So I, I think we need to kind of update our own understanding of the value of our citizenship to the present day realities of our country. And I think if we do that, we, we have the potential uh, to, make, to, make, to advance two important policy agendas. One of which is to ask newcomers who, who arrive in Canada uh, to assume uh, additional responsibilities associated with becoming Canadian. And we do that not out of a sense of, of, uh, of a, a kind of a, uh, thumping our chests about how great Canada is and how you should learn everything about Canada, but really for a very self-interested reason. That right now, we're an aging society. We have a shrinking workforce. We need newcomers to settle in Canada, to integrate successfully, uh, to create jobs, to raise families. Yet we have an immigration system today where we're seeing 40% of professional and male, professional and skilled male immigrants leave the country permanently within 10 years, 40%. We have an immigration system where we're bringing in a quarter of a million people a year uh, and approximately uh, a quarter to a third are those economic uh, uh, immigrants, the ones who are bringing the skills, the work experience that we need to build uh, the Canadian economy. So only a small portion of our total immigration right now is focused on that, that essential group. So we need to somehow make Canadian citizenship more sticky. And in that regard, I think we should be discussing about lengthening residency requirements for newcomers so there's more opportunity to learn a, a new language, which is uh, the case for many newcomers arriving in Canada today, and just to integrate into their newfound, uh, their new society. And we have one of the shortest residency requirements of any uh, advanced uh, industrial nation. Similarly, I think we should be uh, helping immigrants, because there's been a debate about recently in the media about language skills amongst newcomers. And I think it's terrific that we ask those skilled and professional workers to have some language ability coming into Canada, but let's not forget their dependents. Let's not forget the, uh, the husbands and wives and the children who come with them to ensure that their language skills are also improved between the period when they arrive and become a permanent resident and when they uh, take on full citizenship. Because we're fooling ourselves and we think that newcomers can integrate and be a full member of this nation of citizens unless they have some basic proficiency uh, in French uh, or English. So I think we should be spending more money. It's, you know, th th this is unfortunately, if we're gonna walk the, walk the talk on being an immigration superpower, which I think is great. I think it's terrific that we're bold in this one area of policy making, that we have the highest per capita levels of immigration in the world, then we've got to make sure that immigration works uh, for, for newcomers. In this regard, I think it's essential that we really question our policies around uh, these so-called citizens of convenience, people who acquire Canadian citizenship and then go abroad permanently 
without paying any taxes, without contributing to grow and enrich the very citizenship which they've sought out. Uh, it's not so much that I want to punish these people, uh, because I'm sure there are ways that they contribute. It's rather the degree to which they devalue the experience of citizenship for all those newcomers who decide to stay in Canada, who are here raising families, who are here struggling up an economic ladder, yet enjoy very few additional benefits to that permanent uh, non-resident who's returned to their country of origin or left somewhere else with that Canadian passport. So I think we should be looking at taxing uh, Canadian citizens on their worldwide earnings, following the example of the United States. And again, it's not going to raise, it's not going to fill our public coffers, but it, but it, 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 it impresses home an important point that you, one contributes to one's country whether you're here physically resident in it or not. Uh, final point uh, on, on immigration. I think we need to move the conversation about citizenship beyond simply uh, a debate about what immigrants could or should or shouldn't do. I think in many ways a lot of the Canadian born are being quite hypocritical to say to newcomers, you know what, you have to adopt our values, you should be voting in our elections, you should be learning our language, you should be um, volunteering in our communities, yet look at the statistics on the Canadian born. We know uh, that it's, again, the greatest generation is the generation who has volunteered the most, the, the generation that's voted the most, the generation that has the highest levels of civic literacy. And unfortunately, at 38 years of age, a lot of my peers, uh, as we've seen through research at the Dominion Institute, are doing none of those three things. In fact, many of our generation have become civic slackers. Uh, we've kind of tuned out of uh, the idea that that one of, our, one of the things that gives meaning in our lives is to, to be part of a, uh, a public community, a civic community of, uh, of like-minded people who are knowledgeable about their country, who are interested in contemporary uh, affairs and debates, and participate. Uh, so I think it's equally important for us in terms of our policy prescriptions when we look at, at ensuring that you know, newcomers have the levels of civic literacy and social capital to be full participatory citizens to see what we could do for the Canadian born to ensure that they also uh, increase their ability, increase their rates of participation. Now I wish that could happen just vol voluntarily, I wish that could happen spontaneously out of our schools, uh, yet as I have to say in every speech because it, it, it just annoys me so much, we only have three provinces that require students to take a course in 20th century Canadian history to graduate from high school. So we spend, uh, you know, as we're discussing with the CBC, hundreds and billions of dollars subsidizing Canadian culture to fight off the supposed, you know, threats of, uh, of Americanization, to maintain our cultural sovereignty. Yet the one area where we have absolute jurisdiction, absolute sovereignty, our classroom, we have let down a generation of Canadians and we're letting down a generation of newcomers who are sending their, their kids to our schools right now. So I'd like to see uh, more mandatory history uh, in schools, but let's face it, the provinces are very parochial in their curriculums. They're not going to adopt a national, uh, a national uh, history curriculum because I say so. But one idea we developed at the Institute, which I think has uh, got real merit, is what if we asked every single high school graduate, whether they've been here for four years or their families have been here for 400 years, to pass the citizenship exam before they receive their high school certificate? This would be a really simple way 
to get teachers and educational systems teaching to the test. And we know from education reform that that's one way to get things moving in the right direction. Teach to the test. And ensure that, that again, whether you've been here only recently or whether you're born here, you leave school with some of the same basic knowledge about the country. And let's make that test tougher, both uh, to ensure that newcomers' civic literacy increases and then also the Canadian born. I'm also a fan, frankly, of mandatory voting. Uh, Australia has a voter turnout rate of around 92%. They've had mandatory voting since the 1920s. Uh, and again, the notion is not that you're going to, to go out and uh, you know, uh, drag people to the polls to vote for the governing party. You can go to that ballot in, in Australia and check none of the above. But it's the notion that there are certain fundamental responsibilities, duties associated with citizenship and those should be exercised. And if you fail to exercise them, then the community, uh, the nation, will, will levy a fine. You're not going to lose your house, you're not going to lose your car, but you're going to pay a fine. And frankly, I think you should feel some shame for not, for not voting, for not, uh, not participating. So that's mandatory voting as a second idea. Finally, I'm very keen on, on, uh, on taking on uh, something that Barack Obama seems to be uh, talking up, he's talking up a lot of things, but he's talking up this idea also, which is some form of national civic service uh, for young Canadians. Uh, again, we have 400,000 graduates who come out of our school systems every year. They're the product of these very parochial provincial curriculums. They know very little about the history uh, of their nation or the history of other regions and groups uh, in the country. Our surveys have shown that. So I think there'd be an interesting program to say, you know what, we know that you as a graduate going on to a university or some form of post-secondary education or job training are going to incur debts. Uh, let's help you with that. Let's help you with uh, a grant uh, to pay for your continuing education if you give your country eight or nine months of civic service. And yes, that can be military service, but it doesn't have to be military service. It's interesting, though, that we, we do have a program like this that has a storied past. It's somewhat uh, shrunken today, and that was Katimovic. And in Katimovic, military service was the most popular option uh, for, for young people in that program. So I think we need a kind of a super Katimovic to ensure that, that in this increasingly diverse, decentralized country of ours, we have a generation of young people coming through our schools, through those provincial education systems, and then giving a period of time eight or nine or 12 months uh, to their nation, Canada, to convey to them the idea that these men and women who fought in the Second World War, who are with us today, appreciate, which is the sense of responsibility that comes with citizenship, not simply the rights and the privileges. So just to summarize, what I've attempted in this book uh, uh, is to, to, again, shift the pendulum, to move away from a, uh, a conversation about Canada, which I think is, is quite unthinking, which is this notion that our diversity simply is going to self-promulgate, uh, that we don't need to worry too much about common institutions, common symbols, common values, and common history to actually support that diversity, and to use the institution of citizenship as a new kind of spine for our body, body politic, to get us standing up straight again, uh, confident of who we are as a people, not in a pejorative way, not in a narrow-minded, nationalistic fashion, but to get ourselves to once again understand that we are a nation of citizens with remarkable things to accomplish together. 
So let's, uh, let's, I'm finished, let's take some questions uh, from the audience. So I think there's only uh, one microphone. So I'm going to go to Amanda Lang first. Amanda, if you say the question, I'll, I'll repeat it. Or you've got a loud voice, too. So Amanda's question is, uh, Amanda Lang from BNN, it, can, you, can you kind of have this civic revolution that I want without it, in a sense, being in our DNA anymore? We've kind of bred it out somehow. Um, it's a good question. And I guess when I was writing this book, I was thinking, you know, the temptation with a lot of policy-type books is you go right to the prescriptions and you kind of line up eight or ten things that are going to rectify the problems that you've diagnosed in the preceding chapters. And I guess that's why I said that we need to kind of re-educate ourselves about what Canada is, so that we're not, I think we're kind of trapped in this Joe Clark communities of communities formulation. We, we've kind of, uh, while multiculturalism is something we take pride in, I, I think we often misunderstand its what exactly it's doing or how well it's doing it or its relevancy to Canada today versus when it was adopted uh, in the late 1960s or early 1970s. Um, so I, I think we need to kind of have some process of talking of books like this, of other kind of debates that posit or put forward a different narrative for the country. I mean, Andrew Cohen's here and he's done an exceptional job, Andrew, as a journalist, kind of writing about, uh, again, citizenship, a an idea of Canada that's different than the kind of the Ottawa think, the Department of Canadian Heritage think, that I feel f dominates far too much uh, this kind of mishy-mushy uh, conversation about Canada. But I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that there are uh, you know, people who are kind of hungry for this message and who intuitively kind of in their bones feel that it's right. It's a, it's a civic nationalism that they see as open and inclusive but not this kind of postmodern cul-de-sac where we drive around in a circle all kind of uh, congratulating each other for the values we have, for who we are. Instead, there's a, a center mark, a, a, a something we put down and rally around. I'm wondering, a famous Canadian quotation is, conscription is necessary, but not necessarily conscription. And we have a very troubled history with demanding people uh, de demanding that people engage in a public service, and I'm wondering how you would address or what you think about something like that to ask people to engage in public service, given that we have. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, uh, how can it, how, how realistic is it to posit some form of national civic service when Canada does, as the questioner mentions, has a very troubled history with uh, conscription around uh, the two world wars? Um, I think that's what's in some ways really interesting about this exper experiment we have going on with mass immigration is that increasingly there's a lot of people coming into Canada, 250,000 a year we've been at this for a couple decades now, who have none or very few of these kind of longer standing historical grievances about what happened and who did what to whom. So that's not to devalue them or say that they're not there and they're not real. And would this policy be popular in Quebec? Probably, probably not. But I still think there's a whole fascinating 
you know, sea of people washing up on our shores from around the world who, who arrive here. We know we work with them at the Dominion Institute through our Passages to Canada program, uh, the TD Bank and others support, where, you know, it, it, it's like unwrapping a giant flat screen television without an owner's manual. I mean, they're, they're often bemused and somewhat puzzled at why a country that they've chosen it tells them so little about itself. And I think there's a hunger amongst those immigrant communities to, to be part of that larger whole. I mean, they have uprooted themselves. They have chosen to be here. Uh, so I'm, I'm optimistic about at least that group getting excited about an initiative like uh, mandatory civic service. Uh, John Fraser at uh, Massey College. Uh, Roger, you, you just mentioned for the first time the word Quebec. I would like you to work Quebec into your theory. I'd like to hear what you have to say about yeah. that. Uh, I do write a bit about uh, in, uh, Quebec in the book. Uh, and uh, here I feel that, uh, you know, Quebec Inc. and the remarkable kind of business acumen of a, a generation of Quebecers has really done far more for national unity than any uh, misguided uh, government program, and there have been some pretty misguided ones over the last while. In other words, I think for Quebecers, some of the, uh, the, the economic sting um, uh, has gone out of their relationship with the rest of Canada. The Quebec is increasingly acknowledged on the world stage, its culture, its artists, its business acumen. So we, we did an interesting survey at the Dominion Institute where we found that, you know, I think one in 800 Canadians who we polled, uh, there was only one who felt that the threat of Quebec separatism, uh, or that Quebec could separate to Canada by the year 2020. So I think it's interesting that, now these may be famous last words, uh, the zombie may come out of the tomb, but I think something interesting has happened in Canada the last number of years, which is the sense of accommodation with Quebec, and the degree to which this is now freeing up new kind of mental and emotional space for Canadians where we can maybe start to take some steps beyond the, uh, the scorpions in the bottle kind of analogy for the country to, uh, to that larger we. Um, again, those could be famous last words. Uh, Michael Sherman. Roger, thank you for the book. Uh, one thing that I found fascinating was your comment that uh, one out of every 33 Canadians has dual citizenship. 3%, and, and that kind of surprising. What does it say about a country that has so many people whose allegiances are shared? In particular, we've had party leaders uh, in government who have shared allegiances. And, and also, you suggest that maybe this should be overcome. And uh, is that a serious uh, suggestion yeah. that you're making? Uh, and I'll answer this question in the hope that Rupert doesn't ask us, because he has a, uh, a question about dual citizenship. The fact that, as I confess in the book, in the conclusion, I'm a dual citizen. Uh, and part of the reason I wrote this book was the experience of going out and acquiring that second citizenship. I didn't do it for economic reasons. I, I did it for family reasons. In fact, uh, because my father was born in Scotland, because my grandfather fought and died in the Second World War, I think like a lot of immigrants, my second citizenship was a way of acknowledging the people and places from where I, I came from. But at the same time, I realized that living with the mental habits, the gymnastics of dual citizenship was... Uh, not eroding my commitment to the country, but it was making my loyalties more conditional than they might be. The idea that there was some escape hatch that I could run down to and away from Canada if the going got tough. 
Uh, and as I write about the book, I think in some ways the going is going to get tough. There are some real strains coming on our, our society in terms of these ballooning debts, an aging population, uh, shrinking social benefits. Uh, you know, a healthcare system in the last Ontario budget, 42, 43%. How long is that sustainable? In other words, I think that we need to find ways to kind of build up our reserves of social solidarity and that we can do that through the institution of, of citizenship. And the fact that, as we discovered with our friends at Ipsos Reid, and John Wright is here today, there's over 750,000 Canadian adults who are Canadian-born and dual citizens. So what's interesting there is they haven't, you know, come to Canada from away and need to maintain a second citizenship to re-enter their country of origin. These are people who were born in Canada and have gone and sought out that second passport. Uh, I don't think that does anything for Canada, uh, and I think we should put an end to it. Richard, you touched a little bit upon taxation, and I think it's very interesting the relationship between citizenship and the value of citizenship and taxation. And you uh, identified a group of immigrants who come to Canada who are wealthy, who have a passport of convenience. I would say there are a number of Canadian-born uh, citizens who actually use the resident status to move offshore and avoid paying taxes in this country. I'm a dual citizen, I have to admit, of the U.S. where I get taxed on my citizenship. And I actually think that's a much better uh, system of taxation. And I'm surprised that it's not more uh, debated and discussed in this country. Residency seems very arcane as a method of taxation. So have you had any traction with any of the people that you've been speaking to on this issue? Uh, so the question is about uh, uh, requiring uh, Canadian citizens to pay taxes on their, their worldwide earnings, whether they're resident in Canada or not. Um, I have a bit. I think in the media they're picking up on it because it's actually not that difficult to do. We already have tax treaties with a whole number of countries. Um, again, though, I think it's important to realize it's not a big kind of revenue grab. Uh, it's not really. <laughs> it could be helpful. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I, I think you are right to bring up, bring up not just the citizens of convenience, the newcomers who have acquired that passport and then gone abroad, but probably a lot of Canadian-born who are, uh, have, have permanently domiciled themselves abroad to avoid Canadian taxation, and I think we should put an end to that too. It's only fair. And again, I think on all these debates about citizenship and immigration, we should be looking at it through both lenses, the Canadian-born and newcomers. And right now, the debate, for my liking, is too focused on newcomers. I think we need to, to take a hard look at the Canadian-born, too, and their sense of citizenship, their allegiance, their loyalties to Canada. Uh, you mentioned briefly the need to update uh, our identity, especially given looking back to the 60s, 70s. But what if the parliamentary crisis Yeah, so the asking about the parliamentary crisis of last fall and and whether that was a, maybe a moment to be optimistic about because it was a, a what what a teachers call it a teaching opportunity. Um, it, it was a teaching opportunity. It was kind of as a constitutional junkie reading analysis of what governor generals might or might not do in the pages of our news, national newspapers was a, a lot of fun um, for me. Uh, but then I'm a kind of a geek when it comes to these things. 
But when looking at, at the wider population, uh, we actually did a poll at the Dominion Institute, well, Mark Shalafu did it, where we found that 50% of Canadians believe that the Prime Minister is elected directly by the voter. So again, when I get, when we get results like that, that starts to worry me. It starts to, starts to create this sense somehow that the ground is just falling out beneath our feet and there is this, uh, this kind of void of historical, civic, and political amnesia. Um, you know, these are some really basic things about, you know, again, responsible governments in my book. I mean, these are core institutions, core values that have to be, I think, forcefully maintained and promulgated through our schools and through some of the public policy responses uh, that I've outlined. Um, I'm getting, uh, getting the, uh, the eye here, a very gentle eye from Helen. Uh, but let me take uh, one more question. I think there was somebody at the back. I can't ask. The Dominion Institute table can't ask questions. Come on, guys. Okay, I'm going to go over to uh, Elvio Dazzato. A little bit of history since you're so young and won't remember this. Multiculturalism, a lot of people thought, started with Pierre Trudeau in the early 70s. In fact, it's an outcrop of the bilingual but cultural convention that went on in 1965 or 66, which I participated in. At that time, most ethics in Toronto weren't concerned about multiculturalism at all. It was a defense to biculturalism that came up. How do we want to do this kind of thing that's happened? Because I can speak as a first Canadian and a firstborn Canadian that I've never felt anything but Canadian. And I am opposed to dual citizenship, as I've told you. As much as my wife has said we should get it because it's easy to travel in Europe with it, I am a Canadian, period. So if you can just address how do you deal with this multiculturalism, which was a reaction to biculturalism. Yeah. Uh, and the connections of biculturalism are interesting, because I think in some ways uh, multiculturalism has become a combination straw man, kind of whipping, whipping boy for a, a whole series of debates. And I think the larger debate really is how English-speaking Canada has acquiesced in the promulgation of a, a common civic identity. So I, I would argue that it's not so much a question of, of kind of abolishing multiculturalism, it's more a question of uh, uh, putting forward an argument of can about Canada, about the role citizens should and could play, about a common history and about common values that allows all that difference, all that diversity to kind of to flourish, that it's not going to flourish on its own. It has to be supported by common institutions, common history, common, common symbols. And I think in that regard, uh, I mean, there are elements of that that will be provocative to Quebec, but I think at the same time, I think Quebec felt through the period of kind of multiculturalism and, and post-modernization in Canada that it lost an ally in English Canada to engage in that bicultural product project of, of building a country within which there would be a French fact. It, Canada's, English Canada's lack of identity, it's kind of constant existential crisis about what it is, I think has actually undermined, uh, eroded some of the, the foundations of our, our unity and the connections between French Canada and, and English Canada, that partnership. So I'm going to stop there on that note and invite uh, Helen back on stage. Thank you, Rod Jordan. I'm actually...
Thank you for that. I'm actually going to invite uh, Jimmy Watt, the director of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to come on stage and offer official thanks on behalf of the club. So, Jamie, Jamie join us up here. All right, big shot. If you think I'm using a podium and, and notes after that presentation, you've got another, you've got another thing coming. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you've seen the same sign that I've seen at Indigo. It reads, the world needs more Canada. And I think after that presentation today, that sign should be reprinted or repainted to say Canada needs more Rudyard Griffiths. In, in a country where far too many of us content ourselves with the comfort of a lazy boy a tube of Pringles in one hand, a Coca-Cola in the other, and a TV remote control somewhere in between. Rudyard is the very essence of what it means to be a leader in Canada today. And he does that with the tip of his hat, of course, to the older generation, respectfully, as he did today. But his real gift is he animates, and he engages, and he excites the generation below. That's what makes him a very special man. That's what makes him one of our treasures. So, Rudyard, for that and for your presentation today, you have both the appreciation and the thanks of the club. Thank you very much. Thank you for the thank you, Jamie. Thank you again for enlightening and engaging us, Rudyard. It was a wonderful day with you, and thank you to all of you for joining us today. This concludes today's broadcast live on Rogers TV, and this meeting of the Canadian Club of Toronto is now adjourned. <laughs>